Evening, folks. Um, the reading tonight is, uh, we're in 1 Samuel again, uh, starting at chapter 27. We're going to be reading through from the beginning of chapter 27 all the way through towards the end of the, uh, the book. Wonderful. So, 1 Samuel, chapter 27, first verses 1 and 2. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with, uh, with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maog, uh, Maok, king of Gath. Now we'll move forward to uh, chapter 28, uh, starting at verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists of the, from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up, uh, bring up for me one who I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for me, for my life, to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Then the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do, what do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give, give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. Uh, chapter 29, starting at verse 11. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and, the Z and Ziklag, 
They attacked Ziglag and burned it and had taken captive the woman, the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the, wid- the widow of Nabal of-, Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Chapter 30, starting at verse 16. He, an Egyptian slave of an Amalekite, led David down to where they, the Amalekites, were scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and the herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Uh, Chapter 30, verse 26. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to, uh, to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, to those in Arar, Sif, Sifmoth, Estemoa, and Rakal, to those in the towns, town of the Jeremalites and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Bor-Ashan, Afak, and Hebron, and to those in, the, uh, in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer all died, and all his men died together the same, that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. Now, I have some good news for you and some bad news, depending on whether you've been enjoying these long narratives in 1 Samuel. Tonight, we're starting, next week, we're starting a new series, and there will only be five verses in that reading. Do you remember those days? Five chapters tonight, five verses next week, but the Lord has lots to teach us, lots to teach us tonight. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that these things happened to the people in the Old Testament, but were written down for us. 
And so let's pray that God would help us to understand these words rightly tonight. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that tonight you would help us to understand this long section, but also to understand what it's teaching us today. Help, help us to know how to live for you, how to honour you, and how to learn to trust Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Is life a tragedy or a comedy? Now, I don't mean comedy as in Michael McIntyre or whoever more edgy comedian you enjoy listening to. I mean tragedy or comedy in the Shakespearean sense. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in literature. My degree is in engineering. But I'm told that Shakespeare's plays can very easily be split in two, tragedies or comedies. And there's a very simple way to find out. If you open one of the plays to, to a scene in the middle, you may have no idea whether it's tragedy or comedy. Things could be going really well. Things could be going really badly. Just don't know. But what matters is when you get to the end. When you get to the end, the final scene, it's all made very clear. If the final scene is a funeral, you know, think Macbeth, Romeo or Juliet, where all the main characters are dying, then it's a tragedy. And, and from the end perspective, you can look back and see a downward spiral that's taken place leading to disaster. On the other hand, if the final scene is a wedding, you know, think Midsummer Night's Dream or, or Much Ado About Nothing, then it's a comedy. And you can usually look back and see how things have started badly, but as you look back, you see actually they've got better and better, and it's ended with celebration and joy. So the question is, is life a tragedy or a comedy? Or actually, if I can make it a bit more personal, is your life and mine going to be tragedy or comedy. I guess in this room, lots of us are young and we hope with most of our lives still ahead of us. And you may have had a terrible week this week or a good week this week. There are many ups and downs, but I guess not many of us assume that our life is going to end in a downward spiral of disaster. Actually, we hope and perhaps expect that our lives are just going to get better and better and better. But can we really know that's going to be the case? Is there any sure way of knowing that at the end of life, through all of the ups and downs, when our lives are over and we stand before God on judgment day, that my life and your life is going to be a, a, a comedy ending in celebration and joy rather than a tragedy. This evening, as we reach the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we see that it is both tragedy and comedy, depending on which perspective we look from. For Saul, the story is tragedy. He's an impressive man physically, militarily. He seemed on a trajectory towards greatness. But at the end of the story, we find him dead under God's judgment. Whereas for David, well, it's comedy. that He's the youngest son of a nobody from nowhere important. A shepherd boy who spent half the book on the run from Saul. He seemed on a trajectory to obscurity in an early grave. But at the end of the story, he is celebrating a great victory and well on his way to becoming king himself. The ending of 1 Samuel, it is both tragedy and comedy. And so as we look at it tonight, we're going to see both a warning as we look at Saul's life. Don't follow the path of Saul. That's the way that leads to tragedy. But also we're going to see great hope as we see that we can share in the triumph of God's king. Now, it's a, it's a long reading, five chapters, but two bits of context will really help us to understand what's going on in the section. The first thing to note is that the whole section is not written in chronological order. 
So if you look at where the troops are placed in chapter 28, verse 4, and 29, verse 1, you'd see that the Philistines are more advanced in the earlier reading. In other words, the narrator, what he's done is he's pulled back what's happened in chapter 29, just pushed it back into chapter 28. He, he's kind of split it up out of, out of order. And what the effect that has is, is like a camera swinging back and forth between David and Saul, David and Saul, David and Saul, inviting us to compare and contrast these two characters. So that's the first thing to note. It's not in chronological order. The second thing to note is that what's driving the story for both David and Saul is a crisis of their own making, a crisis of their own making. Now, Saul's crisis is quite straightforward. So if you just look at chapter 28, verse 5, you'll see his moment of crisis. So it says, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. That's quite a straightforward crisis. As king, he should have been focused on defeating their enemies. In so long, actually, he's been fixated on chasing after David. Now the Philistines are advancing and he's terrified, unprepared and scared. So that's Saul's crisis. There's an army coming. David's crisis comes in chapter 30, verse 4, and it's a bit more complex. Now, we don't have time to look at the whole backstory. You can read chapter 27 and 29 when you get home later. But put simply, David has made a terrible decision, a really bad decision. He shouldn't have made it. Rather than keeping on trusting God, David's decided to try and look after himself and he's run away to the land of the Philistines and he set up camp there for a year and a half almost. And by chapter 30, another enemy, the Amalekites, they've come and raided David's city. They've destroyed it to the ground and they've taken all their wives and children captive. And so if you look at chapter 30, verse four, you see David's crisis says this, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. So two men, two crises of their own making. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare the trajectories, the the way that they go from those crises and compare and contrast what happens. What we're going to do is we're going to move at pace through the narrative. So strap your seatbelts in. I've put down four stops we're going to make along the way in Saul and David's story. And that should help us just see the the comparison between the two. And then when we're done, we'll slow down a bit and we'll take some time to work out what that means for you and for me tonight. So firstly, if you open up chapter 28, let's have a look then at Saul's trajectory after his crisis in verse four. So Saul, faced with this terrifying army coming to approach him, what Saul does is to disobey the Lord's words in verses five to 10. Let's pick it up at verse five. It says this, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. Now, Saul hasn't listened to the Lord for lots and lots of the last few chapters. So now the Lord will not listen to Saul. However, instead of repenting and pleading to God for forgiveness, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands by asking for a medium, a witch, a sorcerer. Now, this ought not to surprise us if we followed the rest of the story, because time and time and time and time again, Saul has shown himself to be the sort of leader who loves taking matters into his own hands and not listening to the Lord. He's always got a better idea. He's always got a better way to fix the situation rather than repenting and waiting for God's mercy. And so when in verse seven, he says, "Okay, can you find me a medium? a sorcerer, witch, whatever you want to call it. When he says that, alarm bells ought to be ringing. Because back in verse three, it said that he's already kicked out all of the mediums and the spiritists from the land because he knows it's not right. He shouldn't be doing that. 
in case we're in any doubt, God doesn't want us to be messing around with the occult practices, witchcraft, sorcery, that sort of thing. Deuteronomy 18 calls them detestable practices. The Lord said, don't get involved with them. And Saul knew that, which is why he'd outlawed them from his kingdom. So when he asks, verse 7, where's the local medium? He knows he's doing something really wrong. And as he travels down to see her, the story just keeps on highlighting his disobedience. So verse 8, he disguises himself and goes at night, night, partly because it's dangerous, but partly he just doesn't want to be seen doing it. He doesn't want to be recognized as the guy breaking God's laws. And then verse 9, when he gets to the medium, even she's trying to talk him out of it, saying, are you sure this is right? Don't do this. And then when Samuel appears, verse 12, and after Samuel's delivered his message, verse 21, she's the one who keeps saying, are you sure this is right? We've not done the right thing here, Saul. Saul's response to his crisis is not to repent and plead to the Lord for mercy, but to take matters into his own hands, blatantly disobeying the Lord. And we see the result of that when Samuel speaks to him in verse 16 to 20. Now, in case you're not clear of this, that the Bible is not a textbook on how to talk to the dead. I mean, I take it from the medium's own surprise when Samuel appears crying out at the top of her voice that she wasn't actually expecting him to come in this form. But the Lord sovereignly sent Samuel back to speak to Saul. And the message Samuel had for Saul literally floored him. Just look at verses 19 and 20. This is the end of what Samuel said. He said this, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. Samuel reinforces what the Lord has been saying to Saul for a long time. His choices to repeatedly disobey the Lord again and again have finally caught up with him. And Samuel says tomorrow he's going to die in battle. And when you look at Saul's reaction, he has gone from being this outwardly impressive, head and shoulders above the rest, military, militarily strong king, to now lying on the, the floor of a, a witch's house, dressed in a disguise, so he's not even recognisable as the king and just full of terror. He has no strength left. Saul was left with no strength after repeatedly disobeying the Lord. And then when we flick through to chapter 31, we see what happens when the battle begins and we see the Lord's enemies attack. So chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and will abuse me. But the armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Now, you might have thought that having received this message from Samuel that he's going to die in battle, Saul would have spent all night pleading with the Lord, crying out with him, Lord, please have mercy. Please forgive me. Please will you intervene in the situation and help? But there's no sense in the text that Saul does that. Many times in the Bible, God pronounces judgment and people cry out to him for help and forgiveness. And he intervenes and does that. But Saul doesn't. Saul doesn't do any of that. He has no strength left. And then he goes out to battle and he suffers a terrifying defeat. 
Saul has become so hardened in his rebellion against the Lord that even after hearing about judgment to come, he still doesn't repent. And so the Lord's words spoken to Samuel come true. This word fell, it's a strange one to use about death in the Hebrew, but four times in this book of 1 Samuel, we find outwardly impressive people who disobey the Lord, they fall in death. So right back at the start, do you remember Eli, who was the very large priest who was described, and he was just passively ignoring his son's disobedience. And it says, Eli fell. Dagon, the Philistine um, god, who they capture the ark and put it in the temple, and, and Dagon's left overnight. And the next morning they come and he fell. Goliath, the, the out there, very big, huge, giant guy who is always shouting about how much he hates God in the text. David comes and throws a little stone and Goliath falls. And now chapter 31 and verse 4 and 5, you get Saul and he falls on his sword. All of the outwardly impressive, strong-looking leaders throughout the book of 1 Samuel, again and again, you find they fall. There was to be no glorious victory for Saul. No more singing about how he had slain his thousands on the battlefield. Instead, Saul and his army are defeated, just as the Lord promised. But the result of that tragic defeat doesn't just affect Saul, it affects all those associated with him. Do you notice that in verses 5 to 7, how again and again, everyone associated with Saul, they also share his fate. So verse 5, when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their, their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. Everyone associated with Saul faces disaster. The armor bearer kills himself, his sons and their, the successors to the throne, they all die. The army runs away and then the towns who see what happened, they also flee and they're occupied. All those associated with Saul, they face disaster too. And so the people who way back in chapter eight had rejected the Lord and asked for a king like the nations all around them, they are now reaping the consequences of that disastrous choice. Their sons lie slain on the battlefield. The towns have been taken from them and the king's successors are wiped out, leaving, leaving a leadership vacuum. How they must have wished they could go back and undo the terrible decision because the end of Saul's tragic life is to bring disaster on all his people. Now, for the final scene of the book, that is an awfully miserable trajectory down, isn't it? Disobeying the Lord's words, left with no strength, defeated in battle, and everyone faces disaster. That is how Saul's life comes to an end. But in contrast to that downward trajectory, we see David's trajectory from his moment of crisis. And it's the opposite. It's like almost exactly the opposite, going up and up and up. From his moment of crisis, he, he takes the opposite path and things turn out very, very well for him and his friends. So if you flick, forward, uh, flick back to chapter 30, we're going to follow David's trajectory now and compare that and contrast that with Saul's. So you remember David has returned back to his hometown. He's found it burned to the ground. His wives and his children and all his men's wives and children, they've all been taken by the Amalekites. And David is weeping. Let's pick it up in chapter 30. Verse six, and let's see David's opposite trajectory, his triumphant victory. So chapter 30, verse six says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength 
in the Lord his God. So you picture the scene, not only the men, they're, they're all weeping because of their wives and children have been taken, but they're also angry and bitter. Remember, it's David's bad decision that's led to this situation. They want to stone him, but in his moment of crisis, David's response is a stark contrast with Saul. You see, his first instinct is not to take matters into his own hands and sort it out himself. No, instead, he goes to the Lord to find strength in him. It's the end of verse Six, David found strength in the Lord his God. Now that's a wonderful instinct, isn't it? In a moment of crisis, don't need to take matters into my own hands. I need to go and find strength in the Lord my God. Now we aren't told exactly how David found strength in God, but we get a clue through the same language being used earlier in the book. When David was on the run, Jonathan came and in chapter 23 helped him find strength in God. And the very next verse, Jonathan is basically telling David the promises of God and saying, you need to believe them for yourself. That's how he found strength in God. So here in chapter 30, when it says David found strength in the Lord is God, I don't think it's some sort of mystical experience. I think it's him reminding himself again and again the promises of the Lord. That's how he found strength in God, to remind himself who his God is and what his God has promised him. And know for certain that even though everything looks disastrous as he looks around, his God can accomplish and will accomplish his promises. So in contrast to Saul, who was left with no strength, David turned and found strength in his God. And having found strength in verse 7 to 10, we find that David then listens to the Lord's words. So verse 7 of chapter 30. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue him, he said, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Now, again, the contrast with Saul is striking. David speaks to God through the approved method and the Lord is not silent because David has not hardened his heart towards the Lord. And David asks him a genuine question, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? Shall I chase after them? Is it worth it? Is it going to succeed? And you have to remember, it's going to look like a massive long shot to actually catch up with them. I mean, the Amalekites have a head start. His army is knackered because they've gone on a long journey. Who knows which direction they've gone in? And are their wives and children still alive? Who knows? Seems like a long shot. So David asks, Lord, Lord, what should I do? Shall I pursue them? And when the Lord says to pursue, that's exactly what David does. He listens and obeys God's word. No matter how unlikely it seemed, David listened to, the, to God's words, rounded up his men and set off in pursuit of the Amalekite raiders. And then when we get to, to, chapter, to verse 16 of chapter 30, we get to see that David, in contrast to Saul, who was defeated by the Lord's enemies, David himself defeated the Lord's enemies. Now, I can't get into all the details of how that works out. You can, again, read chapter 30 when you get home. But it's another remarkable example of God's unexpected provision. So pick it up in verse 16. This Egyptian slave led David down and there were the Amalekites scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. But David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Now, when you reflect, I think it's really clear that this victory can only be given to the Lord. It's the Lord who's given David victory. It's got nothing to do with his personal strength or his impressiveness or his military strategy, because there are so many things stacked against him. 
God had had to overrule in so many little details so that David could ever catch up with and find and overcome the Amalekites. I mean, God had overruled by sending this Egyptian slave who we meet earlier in chapter 30 to show them the way to go. God had overruled to give David and his men strength to fight for 24 hours. They'd literally just come back from battle. They'd rode out to battle, come back to battle, and, and now they've gone off again, and now they fight for 24 hours. I mean, how do you get that sort of strength? Only the Lord has given that. And then God had overruled to make sure that David and his small force of just 400 men could defeat the much bigger Amalekite army. If you look down, you'll see that it says only 400 Amalekites were able to escape in verse 17. In other words, the force of the Amalekites was much bigger. So only 400 of them managed to escape. But David only had 400 in his army. So it's a much bigger army they were fighting. And God had overruled to give him the victory. And then God overruled to make sure everything that had been plundered was still there and could be recovered. That's the emphasis. David got everything back. Again and again, God had overruled to make sure that David could defeat his enemies And so by the Lord's strength, David managed to do it. He rescued their captive families and recovered a great deal of plunder. It is a triumphant victory. But there's one more thing to see, and that is that David, after winning the victory, he blessed the Lord's people. That's the point of the the end part of the reading, verses 26 to, to 31. It wasn't just to test out Tom's skill at saying these strange names at the end. No, it's very significant because it shows the sort of leader that David is in victory. He is a leader that gives and gives and gives and shares out the blessings of his victory to his people. So if you look at verse 26, it says this, When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And then 27 to 31, he just lists these 13 places and says loads more places also were sent the plunder. David's friends, wherever they were, were sent gifts. I mean, you can imagine there they are sitting in their house and they have they become David's friends years ago. And it, it seems like, well, Saul's in charge. Why, why should I back David? And you get a knock at the door and here's someone with a, a big bag of plunder and goes, here you go. It's from David. He says, I'm giving it to my friends. That's the sort of king that David was, not a king who takes and takes and takes. He is the leader who gives and gives and blesses his people. So that completes the second trajectory. And you can see the contrast between the two. They're two totally opposite trajectories. One relied on the Lord's strength. One was left with no strength. One listened to the Lord's words. One disobeyed them. One was defeated by enemies. One defeated the enemies. One blessed the Lord's people and one brought disaster on them. Two opposite trajectories from a moment of crisis. That's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. That's the final scene. Tragedy for Saul, comedy, celebration, joy for David. But having looked at those two opposite trajectories, how then does God want us to make use of this for our own lives today? What's the point of it? What can we learn from it? Well, I think as we look at Saul, we see a warning. And as we look at David, we see great hope, warning and hope. So let's look at the warning first. Warning, it's not by strength that one prevails. In other words, don't follow the path of Saul. It's very simple. Don't follow the path of Saul. It can only lead to tragedy. There's a a famous poem that says, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Saul's thoughts... I am strong and impressive, grew into an action. Don't need to follow God's word. 
I've got a better way. That action has become a habit of sinful self-reliance throughout the book. So that by the end, it's just become Saul's character. It's actually not that surprising what he does in chapter 28, because that's what he's become. Someone who always thinks they've got a better way. I don't need to listen to God. And in God's world, the destiny that leads to is tragic. God's judgment falls and it is a disaster for Saul. That's what God has been teaching us all through this book of 1 Samuel. To quote Hannah's prayer again from the start in chapter 2, it is not by strength that one prevails. I am strong and impressive puts you on a trajectory that leads to disaster. Now, as you look around the room tonight, actually, I don't mean to flatter people, but many of you are very, very impressive in the world's eyes. Of course, you can always compare ourselves to someone who is more impressive, of course. But just objectively, many here have impressive things to think about. Maybe highly educated, maybe socially competent, maybe good jobs, good career prospects. All of us living in a city that is safe and wealthy and regularly is at or top of the poles of the best city in the world. And these things are in themselves a great blessing. But when you mix in a sinful human heart, that means we're all living in great danger. Because we can easily have that same thought that Saul has. I am strong and impressive. And slowly but surely see that grow into actions and habits and even a character of sinful self-reliance. Now, like Saul in tonight's passage, that disaster might come in this life, but it might not. But it will for certain happen when we stand before God on judgment day. Those who've relied on their own strength and disobeyed the Lord will find themselves facing eternal tragedy. If I can put it really bluntly, hell will be full of strong and impressive people. That thought grows and grows and grows and grows, and the destiny it leads to is tragedy. That's what Saul's life, his trajectory has been teaching us. Because it starts so subtly, doesn't it? It's just a little thought. I am strong and impressive. I can handle this myself. I don't need to listen to God. But when you get to the end of the story, it's grown and grown and grown to define this man, his character and his destiny. Just this week, my wife said to me, actually, it was actually a rebuke. She said to me, James, I really wish you would pray with me about this thing that's going on in our lives. She said, I really wish you'd pray with me. And I'm glad she said that because I looked on reflection. The reason why I didn't as I examined myself was I've not been praying because I think I can handle it myself. I think I can do it myself. I know how I can fix this. So I don't need to pray. Now you can dismiss that. It's just, it's just a tiny little thing. It's just a little error. But really, the heart of it is so soul-like. Sinful self-reliance. And left unchecked in me and in you, that will grow and grow and grow becoming actions and a habit and a character that leads to disaster. Of course, the antidote for you and for me is the thing that Saul didn't do, that he kept refusing to do throughout the story, which is to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to confess our sinful self-reliance and to turn to trust him again. If you take just one thing away from the whole of Saul's life, it's this, it's not by strength that one prevails. Don't rely on yourself. That leads to disaster. But as we turn from looking at Saul to thinking about David, we get to see hope, hope, hope that the Lord will exalt his anointed. The Lord will put his king on the throne and there is blessing to be had. There is tri triumph to be had for all those who trust in him. Now, my, my son is almost three years old and like many boys of that age, he loves playing with toy model buses. 
I've definitely had to sing the, the wheels on the bus goes round and round more times than I should ever admit publicly. He loves toy buses. Now, where we live at the moment, just five minutes down the road, there's, there's a bus depot. And it was celebrating its 70th anniversary a couple of months ago. And it was opened up to members of the public to come in and look around the, the buses. And so, obviously, we, we took our son and he had just the best time running around these real-life buses, pressing the buttons he's not usually allowed to press, sitting in the driver's seat. We even got to go through a giant bus wash. Now, at no point on that afternoon did he say, Daddy, Daddy, please can I go home and play with the models? Because he had the reality. He got to, he got to play with the real buses. And that's a bit like how the Old Testament and New Testament work together. The, the Old Testament in the Bible is full of models, little models that we enjoy playing with, great stories to read all of them imperfect, all of them flawed like David is tonight, but little models. And David, as the anointed king, is a model of the reality who is Jesus, the anointed king who steps onto the pages of history and, and arrives as the perfect king. See, if you'd asked me in the week, what am I preaching on? What's 1 Samuel all about? And I would have said, well, it's a king who in a moment of crisis follows God's words, defeats his enemies, rescues his people, and pours out the riches of his blessing on, his, on friends. And those who've been a Christian for a while would go, but isn't that Jesus? Isn't that Jesus? And it is. For David, as a little, imperfect, flawed model, points us to Jesus, the perfect, flawless reality, who in his great moment of crisis in the Garden of Gethsemane, he chose to follow God's words. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And then he went to the cross to defeat the powers of sin and Satan and death and hell and to rescue his people from punishment, pouring out the riches of his forgiveness and hope and peace and ultimately eternal life on all those who are his friends. And so the way our lives and into eternity will end in triumph is not to try harder to be like David so much as to make sure we're one of King Jesus's friends, like the friends of King David who open the door and, oh, wow, the, the, I received the plunder. I'm just David's friend. That's, that's what I get. If we're King Jesus' friends, we too get to share in that triumph. We get to be one of the people who is rescued from sin, who receives the riches of eternal life that he generously pours out. Like David's friend in 1 Samuel chapter 30, but even more so, those who are friends with Jesus will share in his victory, which is the only certain path to eternal blessing. If you take away one thing from the life of David in 1 Samuel, it's that he's a little model of Jesus. He is a model of Jesus, flawed, imperfect, yes, but a model of the reality. And if we're one of his friends, we get to share in his victory so that our lives might end in triumph, not tragedy. So my prayer for all of us this evening is that we might be one of those friends of King Jesus and we might share in his victory. Let's pray for that now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for all that you've taught us through this book of 1 Samuel. Please, please, would you help us not to be the sorts of people like Saul who trust in our own strength, who follow our own ideas, who think we can fix situations and don't listen to your words. Please, would you protect us from that? And where we see it in our lives, please, would you help us turn back again, repent, confess and trust in you. We thank you so much that in Jesus we have the perfect reality of a king who trusts you and who wins victory and who shares and pours out his blessing on his people. Please might we be those who are his friends 
And will we look to him and find forgiveness and life and hope and all the blessings that you have given us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.